Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Montana this week. We are indeed. Montana. Big sky country. And very small population, I understand. Yes. Yes, that is that is accurate. It is 48th by population density out of the 50. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So 50, I believe, is Wyoming. Really? Not a lot. I feel like it's either Alaska or Wyoming, like the other two. Oh, Alaska is a possibility. But I know Wyoming is like really, really just has no one living there. <laughs> so now I'm really curious to hear. Let me see what let me see what good old Google says about it. Wyoming, you're right. Wyoming, yep. Wow, Wyoming. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. And it's a big state too. Like it's not a small state. It is a big state. It is a big state. I feel like everything out west is just huge. It's true. It's true. Interesting. It is not what either of us thought according to this world population guesstimate. Oh, okay. Wyoming is the least populous, then Vermont. Vermont, huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can regale you with some more fun facts about, about Montana. Please do. I think it's going to help answer some some of the the questions that we've just been like batting around. So, of course, you know Montana's known as Big Sky Country. It's also called the Treasure State, and it's beautiful. It is beautiful, and that is also because there is vast, or was, still is, I suppose, a lot of great mineral resources in Montana. So, in the 19th century, Montana was known for its gold rushes and silver rushes. It produced a, like it was the leading producer of silver in the U.S. during the 19th century. Uh, fun facts about Montana include that it, it is on top of the Continental Divide. Okay. Yep. I think I knew that. I did not know what the Continental Divide is, so I had to do some little digging and learning about all kinds of new geological terms. <laughs> Ooh, well, do tell. Yes. For those of you like me who did not know what the Continental Divide is, it is a mountainous drainage division that separates the U.S. into watersheds for the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. So basically, whichever is on one side of the divide, all the, all the waterways run out eventually to the Pacific. The other eastern side of the Continental Divide, everything runs out eventually to the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico. So I thought that was interesting. And in fact, there's actually a town called Divide, Montana, that is named after the Continental Divide because it's so close to it. Interesting. I like it. Speaking of other things in Montana, the name Montana, it's Spanish for mountain or mountainous, depending on the translation. Well, yeah, because it's, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Montana mm-hmm. is mountain. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. It's funny, too, because even though Montana is named after its mountains, it's actually one of the lowest elevations among the Rocky Mountain states. Oh, okay. Yeah, so its, it's average elevation is only about 3,400 feet above sea level, which is much lower than other places like Colorado and Nevada and things like that. Okay, cool. Montana is the largest landlocked state, however. So take that, Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And it is ranked at number four among states with the largest land mass following Alaska, Tennessee, and California. Okay, cool. As I've been mentioning, Montana is called Big Sky Country. I just love that. I think it's so like you immediately picture Montana and like see it. I think it's such an apt descriptor for for the natural beauty of the state. It is because when I think Montana, I think I think mountains. I think yeah, lots of sky, and mm-hmm. I think waterfalls. Yeah. 
For sure. Uh, some of the largest waterfalls in the country are actually in Montana, which is interesting. So Montana itself, big sky country, there's a lot of open space there. I think we both picture that in our head. And we are not wrong. Actually, there's there's 56 counties in Montana. And out of that 56, 46 of them are known as frontier counties. Okay. Something is called a frontier county when it means they have an average population of six people or less. Oh, my God. No, six people or fewer per square mile. Yeah, wow. six people or fewer per square mile. Yeah. And there is a difference between less and fewer. So There is. There is. That's why I had to correct myself because my wife would not let me live it down. <laughs> So I did mention previously that Montana was really big in, in the gold and silver mining. Uh, in the 19th century, gold prospecting was all a rage in Montana. And as a result, it made Montana's residents incredibly wealthy, as it should. So, for example, in 1864, four prospectors discovered gold at Last Chance Gulch. And that gulch actually became Montana's capital, Helena. So over the next 20 years, miners flocked to the area that eventually became Helena looking for gold and about the equivalent of $3.5 billion in gold was discovered there. Wow. Yeah. And I still hate the word gulch. <laughs> gulch. <laughs> it just makes me thirsty. I don't know. I think because it reminds me of gulp. I don't know. <laughs> it reminds me of gulp and belch mixed together. So it's just weird. Yes. 100%. Good call. So all of this wealth in Montana actually made Montana, specifically Helena, the home to more millionaires per capita anywhere in the world in 1888. Huh. Kind of nuts, right? Like yeah. nobody thinks of Montana as like the home of millionaires. But no, not there at you all. Go. I just think of lots of cattle ranchers and that's like what I yes. think of. 100%. Yeah. I think of like ranchers and like beautiful mountains. <laughs> like Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, there are some other kind of cool fun facts I found out about Montana, and I feel like you'll dig these, Eden, because they kind of touch upon lots of fun things that we always like to chat about. Uh, number one, have you ever heard of a woman named Jeanette Rankin? The name sounds familiar, but I don't know why. You, you probably have stumbled across the name before in, in school when you're learning about U.S. history. So Jeanette Rankin was from Missoula, Montana, and she was the first woman to serve in the U.S. Congress. She was elected in 1916, and that was two years after Montanan women were given the right to vote. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yep. She's our first female congressperson. Uh, in 1919, she was actually instrumental in ushering in the 19th Amendment that gave women in the country the right to vote in 1920. Very nice. She served for a really long time, too, so she was very popular with her constituents, even though she was a devout pacifist. She's the only member of the U.S. Congress to actually vote against involving the U.S. in World War I and World War II. Huh. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Montana. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what else? So did you know that the largest snowflake ever documented was documented in Montana? I did not. But it makes sense. It does. It does. They have wicked weather in Montana. And in 1887, a ranch owner named Matt Coleman, who had a ranch outside of Fort Cogue, Montana, found the largest snowflake ever documented. It was 15 inches wide and eight inches thick. 
Holy crap. Right? I'm like, I have trouble picturing that in my head, even despite Coleman's description of it being, quote unquote, larger than milk pans, because I don't know what the hell a milk pan is. I don't know what a milk pan is either. (laughs) But I'm just picturing this that that's like, I'm like, oh, so it's like almost like a, it's bigger than a vinyl record, basically. I'm like, holy moly, I can't. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Montana. Because snowflakes are so small. Like, what the hell? I know. I'm like, isn't it just snow at that point? I'm like, is that a single flake? Exactly. Good for you, Mr. Coleman. Good for you. Uh, This is kind of interesting. Did you know that Montana has its own state-mandated Native American education requirements? No. Uh, Back in 1972, the state adopted a new constitution that included a commitment to preserving Native American culture that's integral to Montana's history and incorporating it more directly into the educational system. In 1999, the Indian Education for All Act ordered the state's educational agencies to work with Montana tribes to include information about Native American history and culture in Montana schools. It's the, That's awesome. Yep. It's the only state that mandates teaching tribal history as part of its constitution. That's really cool. I, I thought that was super cool. I thought you'd like that one. What else? Oh, Montana has a great big old acid pit. Oh, nice. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the Berkeley Pit. I don't think so. It's it's interesting. So the Berkeley Pit formed after a copper mine near Butte was kind of shut down. In 1982, the pumps that had been removing water from this pit mine were shut down, and the area filled with this highly acidic groundwater because of all the mining, and it basically mixed with the metals in the mine and resulted in this huge lake. It is 7,000 feet long, 5,600 feet deep, and has a pH level of about 2.5. The articles I was reading, like that's the equivalent of like, say, cranberry juice in terms of acid. Yeah. There's so much, it's such a like novelty that they actually have built like a viewing platform and there's a gift shop so you can go visit the Berkeley Pit. I believe I heard about it because at some point, I want to say in the 1990s, a flock of migrating Canadian geese uh, landed in the pit. And of course, you know, yeah, Uh, unfortunately, that flock did not survive, but it did change the pit and create some very unique organisms that are very uh, that thrive in a highly acidic environment. And researchers have been studying the effects of of those geese landing in the pit for, for years now. It's very interesting. That's so weird. And of mm-hmm. course, now that you said about falling in the pit, all I have is that mouse rat song stuck in my head or whatever the band was called from Parks and Rec. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. One last fun fact for you. And it's about hamburgers. Okay. Not where I thought we were going, but okay. <laughs> So according to Greg Motz, who is a hamburger expert, he actually made a documentary called Hamburger America, which is actually a delightful little documentary film if you ever have the chance to catch it. He traveled all around the U.S. trying different types of burgers, and he says that the best burger in the country is actually in Butte, Montana. Okay. One of the first drive-in restaurants in Montana, this place called Matt's Place, has one of his favorite burgers. It's called the Nut Burger. And it is a beef hamburger that is topped with a mixture of Miracle Whip and crushed salted peanuts. 
Weird. Weird, but also I could see that being pretty darn tasty. I could see it being good. I'm not a huge Miracle Whip person, but Mm-mm. I would still try it. I'm not a Miracle Whip person, but I am like a salted nut person. So I'm kind of like, yes. all right, I like peanut butter burgers. So it sounds like it would be a, kind of akin to that. I've never had a peanut butter burger, but again, I'm willing to try it. Oh, I know a place locally we can go to. Awesome. <laughs> so there you have it. Th- those are our fun facts to get to know the great state of Montana. I am ready if you're if you're good on the fun facts for us to get into your true crime tale today. I heard you told me earlier it was a pretty good one. Well, I always need more fun facts, but I will definitely tell you my story because my story is very fun. Well, okay, so maybe it wasn't fun for the people involved, but I still <laughs> enjoy the story. So my story for this week takes place in West Yellowstone, Montana. It's situated in the southwest portion of the state in Gallatin County. It's adjacent to Yellowstone National Park, not to be confused with Jellystone, which is where Yogi Bear is from. Thank you for clarifying that, because sometimes I get a little confused. I know. I figured. (laughs) So it is one of those places that if you blink, you'll just miss it. It has an area of less than a square mile and only has 1,271 residents, according to the 2010 census. Oh, wow. And some of those don't even live there year round. I don't know why, but I've always wanted to visit a town with an extremely low population just to see what it's like. (laughs) And technically, I have been to one, but I just drove through since there's nothing to do in Christmas, Florida, which actually (laughs) has about 100 less people than West Yellowstone. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The only thing I remember of Christmas, Florida is the post office, which has Santa outside year round. So that's about all Christmas, Florida has to offer, guys. Um. It was founded in 1908 and wasn't incorporated until 1966. It seems to have a history with the railroad since it was founded when the Oregon Short Line Railroad was completed. And here's the weird thing about that. I told you it wasn't incorporated until 66 Mm -hmm. and that it was founded because of the railroad, but the train service stopped in 1960. That is weird. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they were like, well, nothing left to do here. Let's just officially make it a town. What's cool, no pun intended, about this place is that it is almost exactly midway between the equator and the North Pole. That is cool. Yeah. So that, plus it being nearly 7,000 feet above sea sea level, causes West Yellowstone to have a subarctic climate. There is usually snow there from November to May. On average in March, there's about three and a half to four feet of snow on the ground, which is just crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how anyone leaves their home. I mean, I guess it's good skiing country. I don't really ski. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. There's mountains and there's snow. I mean. (laughs) What um, more do you need? Yeah. And just to note, that's not to say that it snows that much all at once, but it's due to it snowing so often and the snow that came before it not melting yet. Mm. So it also has an average low of zero degrees Fahrenheit in January with a high of 24. No thanks. If you aren't shaking from the cold yet, I'll hit you with one more chilly fact. West Yellowstone actually holds the record for the all-time lowest recorded temperature in the contiguous United States. It was negative 66 degrees Fahrenheit there once, and that's scary. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, no. Uh, For anyone listening abroad, that's negative 54 degrees Celsius. It looks like a really beautiful place because it's just full of 
well, nature, but way too cold for me to want to go anytime but summer. Now that I have chilled you with the weather, it's time to find a nice, cozy, warm place and listen to a story about murder. This is the tale of Brad Brisbane. Okay. So Brad Brisbane was a man from West Yellowstone with some major ties to the community. He was a part-time gym teacher and boys basketball coach at the local high school. And his wife, Rini, also, uh, he and his wife, Rini, also owned a restaurant in town. By all accounts, he was seen as this fun, funny guy who would do anything for his friends. The events I'm going to discuss uh, take place on and after November 9th, 1990. And that day started off pretty normal. It was a weekday during the school year, so obviously Brad went to work. What wasn't normal, however, was that Brad received a phone call and just up and left that day. Like right after the phone call. Hmm. That wasn't really like Brad. He really didn't take a lot of days off. Uh, he was a responsible guy, and he didn't just up and leave work on a whim. Brad's son, Jeremiah, actually saw him that day in the hall when he was getting ready to leave, and he asked his dad, where are you going? And he just responded with, to help out a friend. His son says that they brought in a sub for Jim that day, and his father told him that he'd see him at dinner time. Apparently, he was taking a trip to see a friend of his named Larry Moore. He was a family friend, and Shelly, Larry's wife, actually worked with Brad at the high school coaching girls basketball. Uh, Larry was in Belgrade, which is roughly 90 miles away. Oh, that's quite the drive. Yeah. All I get from this is that people were right about Brad, and he's a really good friend if his helping a friend has him driving 90 miles. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think Larry needed help with that would make Brad drive 90 miles away? Um, I mean, car trouble, maybe? He needed a ride. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is crazy, though, because there there has to be someone that you can call that lived closer. I mean, maybe not. We just talked about how sparsely populated Montana That's is. That's true. Yeah, okay. Okay, I see your point. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I'm sorry. I love my friends. But the only reason I drive 90 miles to give someone a ride is because I want to get in their pants. And probably not even then. And seeing as how Brad is happily married and most likely straight, I doubt that was the case. Don't think he's after Larry for that. Well, whatever the situation actually was, Brad was not home in time for dinner. In fact, he never made it home at all that night. Obviously, at this point, they know this isn't like Brad at all. And they do talk to the cops about it, who decided to get in contact with the only person who might be able to make sense of this, Larry Moore. When they do talk to Larry, he tells them that they met up at a diner and that Brad was out of sorts. He said he was depressed, he seemed drunk, and was just done with it all. He didn't want the restaurant he shared with his wife, he was sick of his job as a teacher, and even sick of his wife, Rini, herself. After this, Larry says Brad borrowed some money from him, said he was going to leave town, and drove away in a red car with Washington plates. Moreover, he was not alone in the car. Huh. Behind the driver's seat was a woman Larry hadn't seen before. So while this whole story seemed a little off since none of it sounded like Brad, like the Brad everyone knew anyway, there was a chance Larry was telling the truth. Sure enough, Brad's car was still in the diner parking lot and there didn't appear to be any telltale signs of foul play at this point. Yeah, but it's so weird that he would like all of a sudden like leave work to be like, oh my God, I can't deal with my life anymore. 
Yeah, very strange. I'll go with this story for now, Larry. Entirely possible. Mm -hmm. People are good at hiding things sometimes. So during the investigation into Brad's disappearance, they began hearing some rumors around town that Brad and Shelly were actually having an affair. And Larry did say there was a woman driving the red car that Brad got into. But if it was her, Larry surely would have recognized his own wife, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But it makes I'm starting to trust this Larry guy less and less. Yeah. Well, they did look into this and they found nothing. They talked to the two major people that they could about this, Rini and Shelly. Rini said she didn't believe that for a second. And Shelly said outright that it was absolutely not true. The only thing to give credence to this would be the fact that just two days before Brad went missing, Shelly and Larry separated. Okay. Larry, however, believed the two were having an affair. When talking to Shelly, they did get a little more information on this, and she actually believed that Larry could quite possibly believe she was cheating on him with Brad and possibly have done something to him for revenge. By her account, and by some police record as well, Larry could get violent. There were a few times during Larry and Shelly's marriage where the cops were called for domestic violence complaints. So, yeah, Larry not seeming like the greatest guy in the world right now. Mm-mm. So weeks go by and no one has seen hide nor hair of Brad Brisbane and they weren't really any closer to figuring out what was going on. And then suddenly this letter arrives at the police station from Brad. I looked for a copy of the note online, but I could not find one. Okay. But the gist of it is that Brad said he is living in Washington state now and had left his wife for another woman. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting that he would like write a letter and not like, you know, a phone call or whatever. No, it's just a letter. Just a letter. So the police, yeah, the police read the note, but they weren't about to just take it at face value, which is smart. So they decided to look into their only real suspect that I know about. This is Larry Moore, of course. So they were like, hey, Larry, let us search your truck. And he agreed and they found nothing. This truck was super clean, which to me, at least, unless you're a Virgo sun, moon and rising, is very <laughs> odd and sends up a big red flag. There's always something in your car, whether it's a soda bottle or a travel mug you forgot to bring in, a jacket that you left in the back seat that day. It felt kind of cold, but then warmed up. So you just kind of <laughs> left it there. Uh, guilty as charged. Also receipts. I feel like I always crumple receipts oh, yeah. and throw them in the door. <laughs> Mine are always in the cup holder. I know. <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's always something. Mm-hmm. But this truck was beyond clean. They did notice, though, when looking at his camper that he had, that he was patching up holes with a putty knife. Hmm. On closer inspection, they looked like bullet holes in the floor and the liner. To confirm their suspicions about these holes, they did recover a bullet fragment, which was from a three fifty seven Magnum. That's a big powerful gun it's like a fucking cannon for your hand yeah can't you like stop like a charging bear or some kind of nonsense like a gun that big probably like you shoot someone in the arm it's not just going to wound them that's going to take off the fucking arm like it's a powerful gun now when they ask larry about this piece of bullet he's like oh i was hunting and there was this mouse in my camper so i shot it larry come on larry really a mouse yeah, first of all, I, I do not hunt, but who the fuck hunts with a magnum? <laughs> no one I know. And furthermore, 
there's a little that's just a little bit of overkill for the mouse don't you think just get some peanut butter in a trap <laughs> i feel like i want to start calling him larry don't believe him anymore because yeah everything he says gets more and more ridiculous yeah it's just it's completely completely nuts like oh i went you know camping and shot a mouse in my fucking trailer with a fucking magnum larry god damn it I just, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) anyway, when looking inside the camper more, they did recover what appeared to be human tissue on one of the curtains about the size of a quarter. Uh They took the whole curtain with them to have it tested. First off, this is the early nineties and forensic evidence is still pretty new. And secondly, this was a small town police station. So they had to send it out to a crime lab. They did something on the tissue called an Octroloni test, which is something used to determine what species the blood, organs, or other organic material comes from. Okay. And the test did show that it was indeed human. Larry, Larry, Larry. Yes. He's not a good liar. And none of this is looking good. Sadly, this still did not mean that Larry killed Brad. You can leave behind muscle tissue and live. Plus, even if that could prove Brad was dead, it's still not enough to indicate Larry completely. Mm -hmm. They're about to talk to Larry about the discovery when they get another letter from Brad in Washington. This letter was even postmarked as coming from Spokane. In this letter, Brad states that he's sorry for the strain that he put on everyone. But yet again, he says he's fine and started a new life in Washington. And the only way out was making a clean break from family and friends. Now, although Brad still cannot be found, he's becoming a prolific letter writer. As a few days later, after this letter, Larry's like, look, guys, I got one, too. How convenient, Larry. Right? In this letter, I was able to get from pausing a Forensic Files episode I used for research, and it said, quote, Dear Larry, I would like you to draw up any necessary papers that would give Rini complete control of our business, also all personal property that we own. I want her to have everything. I am starting a new life with a new person. This is a very difficult time for a lot of people. Like my mom used to say, though, a hundred years from now, it won't matter. Tell more if he stayed home more often. I might reach him on the phone. Tell him that there are no hard feelings on my part, and I am sorry about messing up his camper. He will understand. I will try to contact the family on Christmas. Thank you. I will write you as soon as I can. Your friend, Brad. Now, what stuck out to you in that letter, Nicole? Uh, why did he third person Larry if he's writing a letter to Larry? I'm really confused. Exactly. That's the biggest thing that stuck out to me. So he's writing the letter to Larry, yet he says to tell Larry he's sorry for messing up his camper, which first of all, convenient to mention the camper now. Um, so what the fuck, Larry? Try to hide your shit better. Kim motherfucking Rico Award. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Another big thing that you can't see is that his wife's name is spelled R-E-N-E. Which could be Renee, but they said Rini on Forensic Files, and I've known people that shorten their name to Rini who are named Irene. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that's what it is. Uh, but Brad, and yes, I put air quotes around that, in this letter, spells it R-E-N-E-E. Brad should know how to spell his own wife's name. One would think, yes. So the police are just really not feeling this, and Larry is looking better for it each and every day. They do some more forensic testing, this time on the letter. They use something called ninhydrin, 
which is a way to get fingerprints on things by reacting to the amino acids. In a pleasant turn of events, it seems that Spellcheck knows the word Ninhydrin, and I didn't have to get an ugly red squiggly under it, so hooray for small victories, I guess. (laughs) They end up finding prints all over these letters, but big shocker, he said sarcastically, none of them were from Brad. Are you just talking third person, not like Larry? Yes. (laughs) But here's the shocking part. They weren't a match for Larry Moore either. What? Yeah. I was not expecting that at all. No, me either. What the hell's going on? Yeah. I have no clue. (laughs) But the next step for them was to have an expert analyze the letter. He was able to find that both letters the police had received, claiming to be from Brad, were typed using the same typewriter and that the paper was cheap and commonly used by high schools. Unfortunately, though, they weren't there weren't any defects which made it tough to find the exact typewriter use. And now, who said video games never taught us anything? Because I learned this from Heavy Rain. So what they do is they judge from the font used to determine the brand of typewriter, usually. And then if maybe one letter is a little fucked up, that would let them know that they were looking for X brand with a messed up letter Q or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting. So there was, however, one part of the letter that was written by hand, which was the signature. An expert reviewed it and said it was full of tremors and written slowly, which is not at all how we sign things. We know our own handwriting and just want to get signing something done and over with, so we do it fast. When you are forging something, however, you go slow and make sure to copy whatever you're looking at exactly. They used a sample from Brad, which was a greeting card that he had signed his name on. Brad's signature on this seemed to be a mixture of cursive and capital letters, not at all what they saw in the letters this other person had been writing. So at this point, they know this is not Brad writing these letters, but they still don't know who could be writing them. Of course, at this point, they are all still thinking, just like we are, Larry Moore had something to do with this, and that he'd been writing the letters even though his fingerprints weren't on it. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I could see with them finding these other prints, but not Larry's, is that Larry wore gloves and the other prints might be from the cops or anyone else that handled the letters. Mm-hmm. I don't know at the point that I'm writing that at. So we'll see what happens. And guess what? I waited and I saw we never find that out. <laughs> so somewhere along the lines, maybe something got mishandled or perhaps maybe the post person could have done maybe. it i guess i don't know yeah it's just super weird i do know that i am glad that i always fill out christmas cards for people and yeah <laughs> um, i'm not a card person but uh, my wife has made me a card person so i guess that's good i'm definitely not a card person either so yeah <laughs> they'll at least have a handwriting sample when you go missing and are probably dead one day hooray <laughs> <laughs> So they did find something else in the camper, and I'm not sure if this was from the same trip to the camper or not, but they found something that looked like blood, which after examining turned out to be both blood and tissue. And this tissue turned out to be from the brainstem. Mm. Now, you might be able to walk away losing some muscle tissue like before, but not this kind of tissue. This could prove Brad was dead. And, you know, if they knew for sure that Brad was dead that would be a great start 
they took this and decided to analyze the bullet a little more in relation to the location of the brainstem tissue and found that the bullet was fired from a standing position and that whoever the brainstem tissue belonged to had to be on the ground when shot. They sent the first tissue sample to be analyzed too to find out if it was Brad's, but they didn't have anything to compare it to yet. So now they were able to try to create a familial match, mm-hmm. which we've discussed before. So they got DNA from both his children as well as his mother, and it was a match. The brain tissue, however, was too small for the RFLP testing or restriction fragment length polymorphism testing, which is what's used to determine a familial match. With advances in DNA testing, however, they can now use PCR or polymerase chain reaction, which actually copies a small DNA sample to give you more to work with for testing. Okay. It's also called by a much simpler, albeit weirder name, molecular photocopying. I mean, it makes sounds it clear weird. what it is, though. Yeah, it, <laughs> exactly. It sounds weird, but it gives you a much better idea of what the process actually is. Mm-hmm. Because like before, if you had a small sample, there was nothing you could do with it. So hopefully that person saved that sample for years and years and years until we got the PCR. And then once they could do PCR on it, they'd have more of a sample to work with. And like I've mentioned before, working with DNA is very tough because you can only necessarily like run one test on that DNA. Because once you do that, it's so degraded after that and you don't have anything to work with. It destroys your sample. So by doing this, they were able to finally conclude that it did, in fact, belong to Brad Brisbane. After this discovery, Larry Moore was finally arrested for the murder of Brad Brisbane and tried in a court of law. Obviously, Larry pled not guilty. Mm-hmm. So now here's something else we discussed multiple times because I just love finding these stories for some reason. There's no body for this case, so it's going to be a difficult one to try in court. They laid out the murder as Larry killing him in his camper in the parking lot of the diner, which was noisy so people wouldn't hear the shots. He lured him in under some false pretext and somehow got him on the ground, distracting him, where Moore shot Brad several times in the shoulder and head. He then cleaned like hell and got rid of the carpet. They did find Larry guilty of the crime because, come on, other than disposing of the body... You kind of gave yourself away with the stupid stories and letters, so you kind of failed at murder. Yeah, and that brainstem, like, that's a very compelling argument to, to, to oh, yeah. make where it's like, yeah, this this won't be outside someone's body unless they are dead. <laughs> like It was from the mouse, I swear. <laughs> it's a very smart mouse. Yes. He was given a sentence of 60 years, and yet again, because I always find these stories... This was the first ever case in Montana where someone was convicted of murder without having a body. It was also the first time in the state that DNA was used to convict someone of murder. Hmm. This, however, is not quite the end of my story because Larry is just not good at this. (laughs) Two years later, so I think 1994 now because it took two years for them to actually get all this done with. So now 1994... Larry was up to his old tricks and was charged with conspiring to build a fucking bomb in prison. What? What the fuck, Larry? Yeah. I don't know if he was planning on just, like, trying to, like, blow his way out of prison. I mean, that tracks, like... I'm going down and I'm taking everyone with me. I don't know. No, I'm sure Larry was trying to figure out how to blow a hole in the wall. Yeah. 
So I don't know. But he actually got out of this by making a deal and agreed to finally take police to Brad's body. What? Yep. That's like, that's, um, that's, I did not see that coming at all. No, no. So they're like, hey, you know, we'll let this bomb thing go if you just tell us where Brad is. So he's pretty much like, I'll take you to him. But I didn't do it still. I I didn't. I'm innocent. Totally wasn't me, guys. Exactly. I know where everything is, but I didn't I didn't do it. All I did was shoot that mouse, guys. So, I mean, if you want to put me away for shooting a mouse, okay, I get it. That's I'll on, serve my time. That's on your conscience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just happen to so, know where his dead body is. Don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so fucking weird. Um, So he first took them to the gun, which was at the bottom of a tree in a campsite in Gallatin Canyon. Hmm. Then he led them to Brad's body, which was in a gravel pit a few miles out of town. Well, at least I'm glad his family like got like true closure, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm super glad that I chose to watch Forensic Files for this week's episode because Larry Moore never admitted to the crime at all in those years, even after taking them to where the body was buried, like I said, but then exclusively wrote into Forensic Files and confessed, which is pretty crazy. That is pretty nuts. Yeah. So the piece they read from it on the show said, I am guilty as charged and thankful the truth finally came out with the help of forensic technology. I have learned that telling the truth is the only answer. Wow. I'm sorry, Larry, but you're an asshole. Seriously. Dear Larry, fuck you. Exactly. So here's the really fucked up thing, though. In 2020... After only serving 28 years in prison out of the 60 he was supposed to serve, he won his parole hearing. So he's now on parole. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I have no idea why they did this, because although I don't think that he'll necessarily murder again, he was also a known wife beater. So he's not the type of person I really want out on the streets. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure Shelly doesn't want him out in the streets either. Like, I don't know. She got to get a PFA real quick. Yeah, but also like the bomb thing. <sighs> yeah. So I don't know what they were thinking, but he's out on parole. They had apparently denied his parole seven times before this, though, which so they just should have made it an eighth time and everything should have been fine. Yikes. So what do you think, Nicole? That is the story of Brad Bisbin and the terrible crime workings of Larry Moore. I mean, yeah, that's pretty shocking. Um Yeah. It had a lot more twists and turns than I thought, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I could kind of tell off the bat that Larry, you can't trust Larry. Oh yeah, like he just seemed a little, you know, Larry about it all. So there was that. It was pretty but, obvious that it was Larry, exactly. Yeah. But still, I mean, it it had a lot of good elements in this story. Oh yeah, for sure. It's interesting too, like how like basically he would have gotten away with it if there weren't the forensic testing that they had that they that was used to convict him basically right so it's kind of like exactly if that mouse had never left behind the brain matter (laughs) (laughs) that darn mouse and that's why cats are great (laughs) exactly but wow i mean i had just i have no words except larry you're an asshole and you should just stop because you're not very good at crime Mm-mm. Well, apparently he did enough to get parole, so we shall True. see. Maybe he wrote them a nice letter. <laughs> or maybe he had Brad do it. 
Hi, this is Brad writing from Spokane. Uh, you should really let Larry out on parole. He's been good, I swear. It was my fault for the bomb. He has been a great friend all these years. <laughs> Tell more. I'm sorry about how I messed up the prison. He'll understand what I mean. <laughs> uh, so dark. Oh, my God. Anyway, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, a Forensic Files episode called Traces of Truth, BozemanDailyChronicle.com, Hellenair.com, GreatFallsTribune.com, OxfordReference.com, Nature.com, and Genome.gov. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. It definitely was a wild trip, and I feel like it's oh, yeah. it sets a bar for, for my Montana story. Hopefully, I can find something just as uh, crazy as that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this one was nuts. I'm so glad I found this one. All right, I guess uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with some strange and weird news and then I can get into my paranormal story for this week. Ooh, I'm excited. Let's do that. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. All right. So my news story for this week comes from the Daily Star and it is... Zoo bans woman who loves chimp and blows kisses through enclosure during weekly visits. That seems a little overzealous, but yeah. Let's find out how much she loves this chimp, though, first before I pass any judgment. Well, she loves him. So, a zoo in Belgium has told a woman she is not allowed to have weekly meetings with the chimp she claims to love due to the fact it could be negatively impacting his social skills. A monkey's romance with a female visitor to his enclosure has been brought to a tragic end after zoo bosses said he needs to concentrate on socializing with other primates. The forbidden love story has captured the hearts of many in Belgium, but the woman is no longer allowed to have weekly meetings with Cheetah, a 38-year-old chimpanzee. Adi Timmermans is a regular visitor to the zoo and has grown very attached to the chimp, who she regularly visits for four years. The mirror reports. The woman claims that she and Cheetah would both be distraught if they were not allowed to see each other anymore. And then there's a picture of her crying while talking to the media. Uh, Adi reportedly said, I love that animal and he loves me. I haven't got anything else. Why do they want to take that away? The weekly meetups involved blowing kisses and waving through the glass of the chimp enclosure. The friendship has come to a bitter end as the zoo said it isn't good for cheetah on a social level with other animals. They pointed to the fact that most of the day he is with other chimps and it's important that he is able to get on well with them. It's understood with cheetah uh, that cheetah grew up as a pet and was donated to the zoo when he became, quote, unmanageable. The zoo reportedly stated, an animal that is too focused on people is less respected by its peers. We want Cheetah to be a chimpanzee as much as possible. Outside of visiting hours at the zoo, he has to manage 15 hours a day in his group. We want to give him the chance to be as happy as possible. Since then, Cheetah has not bonded with new chimpanzees he's been introduced to. The zoo said that Adi will not be welcome at the zoo if she continues to see Cheetah, but Adi says she can't see what she is doing wrong. She said Cheetah is 38, has been used to people from an early age. An average chimpanzee lives about 4 to 40, so his behavior isn't going to change now. Which actually is very true, I think, because he's 38. Yeah. So, makes sense. And that's the end of the article. Um, It's weird because I feel like the way that zoo, like, framed the 
well, reasoning on why Cheetah couldn't like see her is almost like it's not good for him. He really needs to concentrate on being a better chimpanzee. I swear to God, that's like a weird like when like your teenager is dating somebody and you don't like them, but you're like, so he can't really see you right now because he needs to concentrate on his studies or his sports or whatever. Doesn't that like strike yeah. you as like a weird like I don't know weird paternalistic like a excuse where it's like listen. They could just be really blunt about it, be like, listen, he only sees her certain days and the other chimpanzees won't tolerate him if he doesn't spend time with them. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. I think it's weird because, like, I agree that his behavior is probably not going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he probably should bond more with the other chimpanzees, but chances are that's probably not going to happen now. And if he really loves this woman and this relationship makes them both happy, and it's not a dirty relationship, then I guess we're fine, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like it's unhappy for everybody involved. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's some strange, weird news, Eden. (laughs) Definitely is. So let me move on to my strange, weird tale for Montana. Please do. So today's story is a little bit unusual. We are going to head to McDonald Pass. It's located 16 miles west of Helena, the state capital of Montana. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a bit of an odd stop for us roasters because McDonald Pass isn't a town or even a village. It's a navigatable route through the Rocky Mountains between Helena and Deer Lodge, Man- Montana. And actually, it is located at the Continental Divide at an elevation of about 6,000 feet above sea level. Wow. Okay. So today, the pass is traversed by U.S. Route 12, which is a east-to-west highway that runs from Detroit, Michigan, all the way out to Aberdeen, Washington. The trip through McDonald Pass is a beautiful 10-mile scenic drive that lets you enjoy beautiful views of the Helena, Lewis, and Clark National Forest as you travel up a steep and winding road. And Very cool. I kid you not, I found a lot of articles that said, boy, this pl- this road is steep. Not the steepest in the well, world, but steep. You said it's elevated so fucking high, so mm-hmm. I could definitely see that. Yeah, a lot of travelers, especially ones who are in RVs or hauling anything, recommend- recommended that you avoid McDonald Pass because it has an incline of about 8%, which means it can be really slow going and treacherous, especially – um, coming down the mountain or down the pass, I should say, because the road's very windy. Uh, other motorists advised that if it's snowy or wet, you also probably want to avoid McDonald Pass because, again, the twisting, winding road and also the incline can make it very treacherous during the winter time. Now, I love a scenic drive. I don't know if you do, Eden. I just enjoy them. Feel very peaceful. Oh, absolutely. Right. But I, I don't want to slide down this this path so maybe not this one exactly i feel like it's a beautiful beautiful scenic ride in the summertime when it's nice and dry out right yes (laughs) now what really drew me aside from the scenic beauty of mcdonald pass is its place in montana history and the supernatural experiences travelers have been reporting since the 19th century so Hmm. let's dive into how mcdonald pass came into being and learn a little bit more about why it's often called the French Woman's Road. French Woman's Road. Yeah, the French Woman's Road. 
Now, when the Montana Territory was established in 1864, its legislative assembly had really limited funds. They didn't actually have enough to build all the roads the territory needed, so they decided to authorize toll roads. And that authorization basically allowed private citizens to apply for the permission to build a toll road and operate them. And that private citizen would basically bear the cost of building the road and maintaining it. And they would do that by charging travelers a fee to use the road. While there were three possible routes through the mountains from Helena to the mineral rich area around Deer Lodge, the route that would eventually become known as MacDonald Pass was the first route to be authorized as a toll road by the territorial governor. Now, you might be thinking that the reason the toll road was named MacDonald Pass is because it was built by a guy named MacDonald. I would assume. Mm, That's what I thought, too. Uh, And then I started researching the history of the road a little bit more. I did discover there was indeed a man named Alexander MacDonald who was associated with the road in its early history. But he was actually hired to manage the road during the 1870s and 1880s. And since he was the longest operator on the road, travelers became familiar with McDonald's and they started referring to the road as McDonald's Pass. But before that, it was called the Frenchwoman's Road. Okay. I kind of think this shift from the Frenchwoman's Road to McDonald's Pass might have a little bit more to do with the travelers of the road distancing themselves from the terrible fate that befell the eponymous Frenchwoman rather than any great love for Alexander McDonald. Oh, God. Okay. So you might be saying, terrible fate? Frenchwoman? Who is she? Yes, please. Well, she is the wife of the French-Canadian immigrant who built the toll road, a man named Constant Guillaume. Now, Guillaume operated a little ranch near the Little Blackfoot River and petitioned the governor to build a toll road near his property since it would provide a more direct route through the mountains than the Mullen Pass, which was the primary route to Deer Lodge that travelers have been using since like the 1850s, but it was a much longer, less direct route. Honestly, from what I read, it's pretty surprising that the territorial governor even granted Guillaume's petition, given his Guillaume's reputation as a foul-tempered man with a drinking problem. And also, the governor has like documented complaints that he didn't like Guillaume's desire to start charging travelers to use the road before he had fully built it yet. <laughs> so, Oh, well, that's yeah. kind of a shitty business practice. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, so he's kind of this like terrible dude. But for some reason, they needed the road bad enough and Guillaume was willing to build it. So the governor approved his petition. Now, Guillaume completed the road in 1867. And to make the most of his investment, he also built accommodations into the toll house and read advertisements in the Deer Lodge and Helena newspapers. Uh, According to one advert that I found in the November 1867 issue of the Deer Lodge Weekly Independent newspaper, the road was, quote, the most direct route from Deer Lodge City. The road's thoroughly staked out, so it would be impossible to go astray while on it. Travelers can be accommodated with meals and lodgings at the French Woman's. Okay. Yes. So those were the ads that Guillaume would run in the local papers. The French woman was, of course, his wife. She would collect the tolls for the road at a log cabin near the west end of the road. 
Now, travelers would pay $2 a night if they did want to stay on the floor of the two-room log cabin that Giot had built. And for an extra dollar, they could get a meal with their stay. On the floor? On the floor. Okay. Um, and also, I'm just imagining now whenever like he's like at a dinner party or something, it's like, I'd love to meet my wife, the French woman. <laughs> <laughs> but aren't you French too? Indeed, I'm a French man. This is the French woman. <laughs> yeah. Like, she has no name. She has no name. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because uh, we actually don't know her first name. It was kind of lost to history. It's probably like Yvette or Fifi. Yeah, probably. Who knows? Marie. Where she came from is also lost to history. So we don't know if she was French Canadian like Yo or if she was from France itself. Um, all we really know is that she was married to Constant and that. The travelers along the road really enjoyed staying with her. She was apparently very hospitable. She had great uh, skills in the kitchen and was pleasant to be around. There's no known photograph of Madame Guillaume, uh, but I was able to find a description of her from a 1881 newspaper. She's described as, quote, a neat looking critter, black haired, black eyed and sharp and cute, maybe 30 years old and a good housekeeper end quote. I'm assuming that was from some kind of Montana prospector because there was it was a very run-on sentence, almost like he was nervous about talking about her anyway. Okay. Yes. Very <laughs> strange. I just love it. A neat looking critter. I'm like, um, yeah. I would not like to be described as a neat looking critter. Ditto. No, thank you. Ditto. That's like, dear sir, please be a little smoother. <laughs> like I mentioned earlier, uh, Constant Guillaume had that poor reputation. He was known as a boorish drunk with a bad temper, and he also apparently didn't treat his wife the best. They they argue pretty frequently. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the friendly, well-liked Madame Guillaume primarily spent her time at the toll house uh, dealing with travelers on the road, while her husband spent most of his time working on the ranch, which is about two miles away from the toll house. She was probably mad at him because he just she was like, call me by my name for once. <laughs> He's like, Marie? She's like, no! <laughs> it's Antoinette, obviously. <sighs> so Madame Guillaume kicks him to the curb. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they, but by most accounts, they did have a pretty um, raucous, quarrelsome marriage. And he, he didn't do anything really when it came to handling the road or the tolls for it, he would just occasionally do maintenance on the road. Everything else is pretty much left up to Madame Guillaume. Now, unfortunately, travelers on the French woman's road, as it became known, because she was the one that was primarily associated with it, made a ghastly discover in late August of 1868 when stopping to pay a toll. They found Madame Guillaume murdered, the cabin ransacked, and about $6,000 in gold dust missing. Um, the equivalent of that amount of gold dust today would go for about $115,000. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Now, the details of this crime were really sketchy and hard to find, but I did find one article about it from the from the time it happened in a Helena newspaper. According to the article, around 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., Constance Gio left the house to go work on the ranch. Along the way, he met up with one of the hired hands he used to work with. Two hours later, quote, Mr. Cox and family of Silverbow were traveling towards Helena and arrived near the house. With them was a boy driving loose stock who rode somewhat in advance of the remaining party. 
Arriving at the house, the boy glanced through the open door and saw Mrs. Gio lying dead upon the floor, weltering in her blood. Oh. Yeah. Filled with terror from the horrible scene, the boy hastened back to inform Mr. Cox, and while he was on his way, met he met Mr. Gio and told him the sad news, end quote. Why do I have a feeling that Mr. Gio probably did away with her? I don't – I mean, I, it's, it's probably a good idea. I mean, it's always the husband, right? <laughs> Exactly, yes. So when investigators arrived on the scene at the toll house, they discovered that the dining table was set for two people. The house was ransacked indeed. Uh, Madame Guillaume's bedding had been ripped apart. Her trunks were all open. It did very much look like a robbery. Uh, They believed that she was robbed for the gold dust that she had been accumulating and that she, quote, had contemplated returning this fall to France where she had a highly accomplished daughter, end quote. The paper did call the death one of the most cold-blooded and heartless murders ever perpetrated in Montana territory. And contrary to the initial report, it was discovered that she was actually shot and not killed with a knife, which is often what you hear the story is that somebody like slashed her throat. No, no, it's even worse. Oh, okay. Quote, the entire back and upper portion of Mrs. Gio's head was blown off. Oh, shit. And appearances would indicate that she was shot from behind by a pistol held close to her person as she stood in front of the meat bench before which her body was found lying, end quote. Ooh, Wait. The meat the bench. The what? The meat bench. I thought that's what you yeah. said. Meat bench. I'm assuming it's some kind of work table, uh, like a butcher block, but woof. Maybe, but meat bench just sounds horrible. Yeah. Okay. Meat bench is not an ideal name for any kind of kitchen implement. Not at all. <laughs> Uh, and and just going to show you how popular she was, uh, the article kind of concluded saying that while the Deer Lodge County Authority offered a fifty, I'm sorry, a five hundred dollar reward for the appreh- apprehension of Madame Guillaume's murderer, the paper concluded that hanging was quote unquote too good for them because she was very popular and they thought it was such a tragedy that she was so brutally murdered. I agree with them, frankly. Yeah. When it comes to suspects, you're right, Eden. Her husband was absolutely suspected. A lot of locals believe that he was the murderer, especially given his reputation for being a mean drunk. Uh, yeah, I'd say. And then on top of that, there was the fact that he really couldn't account for his time the morning she was killed. When he said he left her at the cabin and when the crime was committed, uh, there was like a gap in time between when he left and when he met up with the hired hand. So people thought maybe he killed her and then went out to work. Uh, either way, shortly after her murder, Gio left the area. He sold his ranch and he sold the road, the rights to operate the toll road to a local sawmill operator who in turn then hired Alexander McDonald to manage the pass. Uh, there is some local folklore in the area that says that after Constance Gio left the area, he did confess to killing his wife. And unfortunately, he was never apprehended or brought to justice. Jesus. Okay. So that is the horrible fate of the French woman, Madame Guillaume, whose name is now lost to history. But she still seems to be a presence along the road. Uh, ever since McDonald began managing the road in the 1870s, travelers reported seeing really strange things at the French woman's cabin. Um, after the road was sold and McDonald began managing it, he actually set up a different toll house that was a little bit further up the road. And 
travelers along the road would occasionally see lights shining from the French woman's cabin, which was for all intents and purposes abandoned. And sometimes they would even see a woman on the road near the cabin. A lot of people said that she looked a bit like Madame Guillot. Today, the cabin no longer exists, but this stretch of McDonald Pass is still has an extremely haunted reputation. Travelers do still report seeing a woman in 1860-style clothing wandering down the road where the Toll House cabin once stood. And if that's not creepy enough for you, <laughs> as the road through McDonald Pass was paved and incorporated into Route 12 in the early part of the 20th century, Travelers started reporting other weird ghostly hitchhiker encounters. Oh, God, I hate these. Yeah. So in the 1950s, there were several reports uh, about a young woman approaching travelers on the road asking for a ride to Helena. One story I found in particular was about a driver who had stopped for a cigarette along the way to Helena. He pulled the car over and he happened to stop near a white cross that had been placed at the side of the road. As he finished his cigarette, a young woman approached. She was dressed in, in a party dress and asked for a ride to Helena. He agreed, and she climbed into the back seat. And as the car left the pass, the young woman vanished. The driver later discovered that the white cross he had stopped near for his smoke break actually marked the site of a recent car accident that had taken the lives of two teen girls who were on their way to a dance in Helena. Likewise, hmm. I found a similar story from the 1970s, which is even creepier because it involves a little girl ghost. Oh, no. No, thank <laughs> you. No, thank you. So at the top of McDonald's Pass, there is a scenic overlook, and there there used to be a rest stop of the phone booth there back, back in the 70s. And I guess a man had stopped there at one point. And as he was getting ready to leave, he noticed a little girl in the phone booth, and she came out and asked the man for a ride. She gave him a very specific dress, again, in Helena. And he said, sure, I will give you a ride home. But before he actually got to the address, the little girl vanished from his vehicle. So Ooh. to me, it seems like whatever perhaps trapped Madame Guillaume's spirit in the past has kind of evolved since into a more generalized haunting of phantom hitchhikers, it seems. Yeah. Um, so Eden, would you want to go on a scenic drive with me on McDonald Pass? Only in the summer. <laughs> because the scariest thing about this road is not the ghosts. It is going backwards down it because you are slipping and sliding and going to die. And then you'll become a phantom hitchhiker. Um, I promise I promise, I won't stop for any wandering ladies, but I will buy you a burger and fries later. Okay. That sounds very good. Then I would definitely go with you. Uh, and we're not picking up any hitchhikers. I mean, as if you didn't need any more reasons not to pick up hitchhikers. It's true. It's true. They're either ghosts or they're going to murder you. It's one of the two. There's no other options there. <laughs> I mean, I can't help but agree with you. And we, I guess we don't have to worry about the little girl ghost because that phone booth is sure as heck isn't there anymore. I mean. No, definitely not. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was out someplace recently and I saw a phone booth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen one of these since like 2000. <laughs> uh, it's so weird because, yeah, they are all gone. And if you see one now, it's like really out of place. It makes me instantly nervous. <laughs> I'm like, uh oh, yes. <laughs> where am I that there's a phone booth? Did I go back in time? <laughs> uh, so my sources for this week's story include Wikipedia, DangerousRoads.org, uh, OnlyInYourState.com, Missoula Current, The Missoulian, and a newsletter from MDT.State.MT.US. 
All right. Thank you for that, Nicole. That was fun. Yeah. I'm glad you liked it. In a terrifying way. <laughs> I didn't realize you had such an aversion of phantom hitchhikers. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't like hitchhikers of any variety. <laughs> but the phantom ones are, you know, I really don't know which one's worse. Because like I said, the other ones are probably going to murder you. Fair, fair. But I guess that is our show for this week. I think so. I think so. Well, if you liked what you heard, please feel free to get in contact with us, give us feedback, or leave a review on any of the podcast listening sites or apps that you use. We always appreciate the review and ratings that really helps bubble our little podcast up to other folks. You can also visit our website which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can shoot us a quick message either via email. Or you can find us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com or you can stop by Facebook or Instagram on those sites. We are Roadside Horror Show. And of course, we're on Twitter because who isn't on Twitter after that Facebook debacle the other day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can find us as Roadside Horror. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters. Creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.